I think of all the arts, poetry is a really good one (laughs) to pair with motherhood because you can do something that feels complete in the fractured time you have, and then you can revise it in fractured time. I'm Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. Every other week, I talk with artists who are also mothers and caregivers about their postpartum creative process. You can find out more about the podcast at www.postpartumproduction.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Have you ever been at a conference totally energized and excited? but you leave and have lost all that momentum. Thankfully, this was not the experience for poets Nancy O'Reddy and Emily Pettis. They shared in a panel conversation at a writing conference, then took all of the energy and support they received and channeled it into being co-editors of a new and inspiring collection of writing in and around motherhood called The Long Devotion, Poets Writing Motherhood. Our talk really gave me faith that there's a legitimate and necessary space for the ongoing conversation around caregiving and art. Thank you both so much. I'm really excited to have this inaugural three-way conversation on the Postpartum Production Podcast. Thank you both for being here. And obviously, I'm really excited to talk about your book, which I have right next to me, which is called The Long Devotion, Poets Writing Motherhood. And you have edited this book. First off, if we could hear about what it was that brought you to the book, like why you decided to put all this clearly, all this effort into finding these amazing writers to collect into this anthology and what that means and you know how you found each other. I'd love to hear about the birth of this book to start and then we can go in many directions. <laughs> I feel like kind of like book as birth metaphor gets used mm. so much and it's really appropriate here. And it mm-hmm. does feel like this shared long, long, long <laughs> kind of labor. So Emily and I, I think, knew each other through the internet somehow, like a little bit. We had coffee one year at AWP Mm. and really liked each other, I think. We'd read each other's books. And we, at some point, proposed a panel for the AWP conference in Mm. Tampa in 2018. And the title of that panel was Writing Motherhood, Difficulty, Ambivalence, and Joy, which is pretty close to one of the sections in the book. And it seemed important at that point to present views on motherhood that would be like all three of those things, like difficulty and ambivalence and joy, because I think both of us, like at that point in our writing and mothering journey, didn't feel like we saw the real complexity of mothering and trying to write while mothering represented Mm. in the work that we saw. Or maybe we did see that work and we wanted to find a way to gather it together and to talk about it. And so we proposed this panel. We had it. It was like the first panel, you know, that like Thursday morning at 9 a.m. panel Mm. where you wonder, like, (laughs) is anyone going to get out of bed to come listen to us? And we were in a big room. I don't know why they booked Mm. us in one of those big rooms. And we had a ton of people there. And it was so wonderful and such rich, invigorating conversation. And we kept running into people after that, like throughout the whole rest of the conference and the book fair and whatever, like talking about it. And I remember, I think we were having coffee maybe like on Saturday morning towards the end of the conference. And we both were like, we should do something more with this. We should make a book. 
how do we make a book? And so a lot of the <laughs> beginning process of the book was really figuring out how do you make an anthology? How do you write mm-hmm. a proposal, which is something neither of us had done before. Emily's sister, who has an MBA, was super helpful in getting mm-hmm. us to kind of trim to our not language. not be poets. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> why do you... Sentence, cut that <laughs> phrase. Um, why do you have all these extra words here? <laughs> We were both poets before we were mothers, and we both remember a time, and I was actually writing motherhood poetry before I was a mother, and I was writing it as a way to understand my own childhood, just thinking about the role of mothers and children. But we had both come from this world where we'd be on these early internet poet listservs, and people would post, I have this poem about raising a kid with impulsivity issues. Does anyone know a journal that would take that? There would be maybe two journals that everyone would suggest all the time. And that was it. The idea was that no mainstream journal will publish a poem about motherhood. And then things really started to open up. I can't put an exact year on it, but I'm going to say sometime from like 2010 onward. I mean, and slowly, it wasn't like overnight But by the time we had this panel in 2018, you could open any journal, big or small, and find a poem about motherhood in it. And so it was just a really exciting time to see like all these people have been writing about motherhood or are Mm -hmm. writing about it now. And there's so many different voices, but there was no book that collected the new things that were coming out in this world of motherhood poetry. So part of it was, look at all this work that's going on around us, and what would it be like to have all of it pulled together in one place? When I say all of it, of course, that's a gross over-exaggeration. What would it be like to have some of it pulled together in one place just to showcase what's going on in the world? So that raises for me a question that I had, and it's actually from a piece almost right at the end of the entire collection called War Songs, Mothering Through Climate Mm -hmm. Change by Sasha West. Mm -hmm. I wanted to pause here and read a section of Sasha West's poem, Recognition, which is in the collection, because we had talked about it in the conversation and also because I felt like it was a really interesting example of how poetry, writing, art can speak to much bigger picture events and catastrophes, really, while also placing that within the challenges of everyday caregiving and mothering. So I'm going to start in a middle section and just read a portion of that poem. We had two cars, a fridge, a washing machine. We're told we were what the whole world wanted. Have you tried the cold brew coffee? The activated charcoal cocktail. We had children who seared joy into us and toil and wrote dead letters to the government, made signs, marched against the violences we could see. All of it filled time the way a life does, expanded if we gave it space Where would those future bodies go? Where could be quiet enough to imagine our children's limbs, neighbor's house in wind we'd never seen? What deserted mall could be big enough to house the imagined carcasses of the dying off animals? Guilt obscures grief. Consolation burns from the inside. I tried to enlarge my mind the way I'd eaten my pregnant belly into an expansion, swallowing each day more facts. And still, I could not contain the entire ice shelf, the size overwhelmed, the numbers overwhelmed, 
At least I could put my body in a storm to be dwarfed. My heart gulped up the graph lines, the exponential increase. I felt, especially at that moment, I felt really seen. I think throughout the whole Mm -hmm. book. I mean, (laughs) I think I first want to ask you, because you're saying these were poems about motherhood. Do you feel like it's accurate to say that? Or what does that mean to you when you're coming across a poem and it's about motherhood? Because Mm -hmm. that's something I grapple with just in general about writing or art. I think I would say that we started with a pretty straightforward kind of writing about motherhood approach. And trying to think, like, what are the different things about motherhood or mothering that we feel like haven't been represented or haven't been gathered together, et cetera? Like, what are the perspectives on that experience? I think that at some point, and Emily, I don't know if we can pinpoint this, but Mm -hmm. at some point, maybe it shifted to be more like writing and mothering. How do we do Mm -hmm. these two things together? How do they inform each other? Mm -hmm. How do they complicate each other? How do they enrich each other? And I think that I at least became very interested, and I think the book is very interested, and it's like an ongoing obsession of mine, like just maintaining a creative life in the midst Mm -hmm. of everything else, right? And we're looking specifically at mothering in here, but conceiving of that pretty broadly, both like biologically having a kid, but also being a step-parent, being a foster parent, considering having a kid and not having one, having an abortion, like the real kind of spectrum of that experience And how does that fit in with maintaining a creative life? And then maybe also how does having, and this is, I think, a lot of what Sasha Westwork speaks to, is like, how does having a kid being a caregiver, like, how does that change your orientation to the world? How does it Mm -hmm. make you think differently about climate change, for example? How does it attune you to, like, political violence? How does it Mm -hmm. also attune you to, like, the joy and beauty of the world? I think that was one of my favorite things that came into the project, maybe at a kind of midpoint, is these wonderful poems that we have by, like, January Gill O'Neill and Clarissa Mendiola and Amy Nizuka Matadal that are about, like, being in the natural world and seeing it differently or seeing it in a more, like, intense way because of the caregiving that you've taken on. I would say to your question of, like, how are these poems about motherhood I think there are poems that are explicitly about motherhood. There is a baby in this poem. We have poems by non-mothers in this Mm -hmm. book, but they are poems that are maybe considering motherhood in like an intellectual or philosophical way. And then we have poems, I think of like Sun Young Shin's poem, Mm -hmm. which is really experimental. I would call it like a speculative dystopia, sort of, if if poetry can take on some sci-fi or fiction genres. And that's a poem that is kind of looking at what it is to be like a human being that produces other human beings, like in sort of a societal collapse. So there's nothing in that poem that I could point to and say, this is about Sun Young's explicit experience of mm-hmm. being a mother. But I do think that Sun Young's experience of being a mother informs the way she's playing with this idea of like the society and how it's evolving in that poem. Mm. Yeah. So speaking of, oh my God, that poem. I'm taking notes as I was reading the anthology and I found myself writing, OMG, wow. Like I was like breathless a lot. Like there were lines that I was just like, Lord. And maybe I don't read enough poetry. I do read poetry. I'm not a poet, so I'm not exclusively reading a lot of poetry. But the poems in this anthology are really, really, really powerful. And I have to say that also, as I am currently in pretty early motherhood and don't have a lot of time 
no one has time, but I don't have the ability. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) And it's so fractured when you have a little baby. Right. Yeah. This was such an easy thing for me to read. I don't mean it in an easy, like in a simple way, but I mean it just in a way that I could feel connected so quickly with the writing that I just loved. I really, really, really loved reading this at this point in my life. I think of all the arts, poetry is a really good one (laughs) to pair (laughs) with motherhood because you can do something that feels complete in the fractured time you have, Mm -hmm. and then you can revise it in fractured Mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Whereas I look at my friends who are novelists, and I mean, I don't know how they do it just in general, because my brain doesn't work that way. But then just to have the sustained time and attention to look at something over a long period of time, even the editing of it, which involves keeping so many things in your mind at once mm-hmm. and being able to keep threads consistent, etc. And then just the other day, I was giving a reading at this event called Poetry and Pancakes. And it's just like in someone's dining room and like you eat pancakes and then you listen to poetry. And one of the people in the audience was a songwriter, and there were a couple other musicians who were parents. My younger brother is a professional musician, and he's not a parent. And my older brother is also a musician, and he is a parent. And my husband's a musician, and my dad's a musician. But the one who is a professional musician is not a parent. And I've always seen like the life of a professional musician is really hard if you're a parent because of the hours you keep and things like that. But even the way you practice, you have to warm up before you can even practice. Even if you're a singer, even if you don't need equipment outside of your body, there's time that's needed just to get ready to do your art before you're even doing your art. Or like if you're a painter, like the setup time and the takedown time, And I just have realized in like talking to other artists who are parents, how lucky I am that this is the art I chose, that I can just sit down for 10 minutes and write in a book and then come back to it later. And that's the thing I don't have time to do. But someday come back to it later and start making something out of it that I don't need a lengthy warm up. I don't need a lengthy cool down. I think poetry is is more compatible with caregiving than a lot of other art forms. And I think that's true. Like this definitely was part of our pitch, as you're saying, Caitlin, for readers as well, that it's something you can pick up, you can read a poem, you can think about it, you can put it back down. It's not like picking up a novel or even a short story. I would say, though, because I feel like we're going to want to sound like total downers about writing if you're not a poet. Yeah, Um, (laughs) there's ways to do it. (laughs) Like, I do think, and this is for me, like, one of the things I learned about, like, writing when my kids were not baby babies, but when they were little and in first in daycare, is that you actually, you can get more done in, like... 15 minutes or even five minutes than you think. Like a lot of my new book was written, like propped up on the steering wheel, like in the parking lot at daycare because I had like three minutes before I had to go in. And I think that's true for other art forms as well, right? Like you can't do huge scale revisions on a novel in 10 minute chunks. I'm sure you need just like big chunks of time for that. But you could dip in and write a scene or make a note about a character or something. And I think that's there's so many ways to tell yourself a story about how like Mm -hmm. you'll do it later or you'll do it when you have time. 
And basically like that time never appears. And like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, even when you have literally little babies, that's still your life. And I think if creative work is important to you, it's worth stealing a couple minutes when you can and doing what you can, even just to keep your brain in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you had me thinking obviously about Amari DiGiorgio's piece in your book. Yes, uh, yes, yes, yes. Words in the air on audio drafting. And actually, just yesterday, was at the beach with my kids. I was thinking about, was like walking literally between the kids mm-hmm. down at the tide pools back to get like a bucket. That is what I was physically doing. Mm-hmm. And I thought about something in my novel. Mm-hmm. And I thought I usually use my phone and I type in my iNotes some mm-hmm. section, scene, what have you. And I thought, oh, wait, I'm going to try this audio thing because I haven't done that. And I did. And I was like, it was actually brilliant. I guess the only thing was I was away enough from people that it didn't feel like they were, you know, because it feels really personal. Yeah, I'm right. And I'm also saying this really bizarre thing about blue lobsters and whatever, whatever. And like, what the heck are they, you know, that I'm muttering into my phone. But there was a fluidity to speaking that felt really nice. Whereas obviously the physical act of having to like type with my thumbs and my phone is also not so comfortable, but you're right. And I also think I'm really curious, actually, Nancy, as you were saying that I'm like, okay, this is the first time I've written a novel as a parent. Mm -hmm. My first novel I wrote before I became a mother and edited while I was a mother, but it was also really pretty much done. I actually am curious now, as you're saying this, I think I'm going to do so much work in this drafting phase and this thinking phase and this like putting out these snippets phase that when I get to editing, which will probably be when my realistically when my baby is in preschool. But I think at that point, it won't be like, I feel like with my first book, there was like editing was this meaty. I think I'm doing a lot of it now. I think that the work that I'm putting out there that I'm putting into form is Mm -hmm. already probably pretty done. Like even the piece that I wrote in my audio wrote, I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. Like just even the literal words, the way I put it together, I'm like, that's pretty concrete. I'm good. It's just going to be then swirling it all together, figuring out how it works. But as I'm doing this, I'm kind of figuring it out. There's no froth. Like there's just not the froth that I had in the first process that I had to clear wade through a lot more in the editorial. I don't know. That could be totally wrong. (laughs) But but. you know so much more. I mean, you know how to write a book. And Mm -hmm. so you know that. And then I also think something that's occurring to me while you're speaking I have poet friends who don't have kids and they'll always tell these two stories. Nancy is, Nancy's heard me say them a couple of times, but one like, oh, you know, I'll sit in the bathtub for an hour and think about this word versus that word in this line. Or this other friend of mine who's like, oh, if I have to interrupt my day to go like to the doctor, that just ruins everything. I can't write that day. And I just think I just can't be precious about my process. I just don't have time to have these rules about how it's got to be and how it's got to feel. And I think that as caretakers rewired our brains and bodies to say, you don't have that luxury anymore. So do it in a different way. And it's not that it's better or worse. It just is. And so do it in the way that you can now. And so you're telling yourself, I don't have time to revisit, revisit, revisit. When I put this down, it needs to be where it needs to be. So I imagine you're also being more selective about at what point you put Mm. something down. It is more formed in your head before you put it down. Whereas maybe on your first novel, you were like, okay, I'll put this down now and then I'll figure it out later. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. 
And I think that, look, just as it as in the work that is created by sitting in a bathtub for an hour will look different than the work that's created in between school drop-offs, there's room for all of that. That's what I think is so beautiful about the anthology and both of your work in general. We're saying, right, that there's room for an eternity of novels and songs and poems and art pieces about all of that. You also have me thinking, and there's a previous podcast that's already been produced that has already dropped with Kate. I mentioned Kate Duclo Rosenbaum, but she does a lot of work physically with materials that are her children's Legos or breast pumps. Or, you know, I think that that's really lovely. That cuts back on, oh, I don't need my easel and my space. And she's working, you know, she's working in the kitchen. Or I think that there's this sort of really lovely democratization. It can be overwhelming, I think, too, but also at the same time, like this democratization of space as a caregiver that you sort of reclaim. I discovered on reading this anthology, the power of poetry to work with my own fractured brain. As a new mother, I'll admit that I've experienced quote unquote mom brain on a number of occasions. And this affects me creatively in ways that sometimes is actually helpful and then obviously otherwise challenging. I'd love to hear from you listeners about your experiences with quote unquote mom brain. Does that term bother you? Do you feel like it's appropriate? How have you navigated the changes in your experience becoming a mother and especially in the early years? And how have you been able to find your creative impulses and be able to return to your work in a meaningful way? Please send us a note at hello at postpartumproduction.com or find us on various social media profiles. Thanks. I guess that's why I was asking about the question about it being about motherhood, because I feel like these poems, like you said, with the poem that you referenced, a series of short stories or propositions by Sun Yun Shin, I think all of these poems, even the ones where there are babies are in them. If a poem is about motherhood, that is a negative thing, but it feels like they were poems. They are poems that exist on their own as poems. And I think, as you said, there's been this shift in looking at, oh, well, if we are writing about motherhood or if there is a baby, there's joy in motherhood that that then gets separated out. It's a relief for me to hear that, especially in the world of poetry and publishing, that these are now seen as legitimate poetic, whether it's a poetic device or a theme or subject matter, that it's not this quaint thing that is looked at only through a very particular lens. To go back to my earlier question, or as you mentioned, Emily, also about the Sasha West poem, when she says, no one questioned the way war could Mm -hmm. be a lens. Mm -hmm. I felt like that was so powerful because, I mean, there's a misogyny inherent in that, I think. But the idea that birth or pregnancy or fostering or caregiving in any way or adoption or abortion are like all of, like you said, the spectrum of experiences that one could have that somehow relate to caregiving motherhood, the whole range of experiences that are there wouldn't be able to be elevated. That wouldn't be able to be universal, universal. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Because I felt like these poems spoke to so much more, like when you're saying the human experience, right? Like Mm -hmm. why motherhood then isn't seen as just another human experience as relevant as death, right? I have a friend who's an academic that studies birth art and her referencing in her book, but anyway, she says that, and I forget the statistic, but the number of pieces of art that reference birth versus death, as you can imagine, is just minuscule. 
where everyone is born and everyone dies. Oh, but men don't typically, (laughs) historically, right? Yeah. One who is identifying as male, as as born male and has, anyways, cannot have given birth in that way. And so I think historically there's less of potentially, you know, obviously an inclusivity, I guess, Mm -hmm. which is sad because those who have not been at war could read a war poem and I would hope would be able to relate to the subject matter therein. So I'm curious how you navigated that as you put this together, but also I would love to hear on your own personal poetic journeys, your mothering, your caregiving, how that process has influenced both this book, but also your own work and your own careers and what that's looked like. I'll say one thing, for whatever reason, it does feel like motherhood remains a kind of like a pretty stigmatized and stigmatizing topic. Mm -hmm. I think that's changing and it is changing. Like I could point to a million novels and like TV shows and things that take up mothering in all kinds of really interesting ways. But it does still feel like to say, you know, I'm writing a book about motherhood. Mm -hmm. It brings up baggage with it, I think, Mm -hmm. of like the expectations of what you're writing and that it's cute and that it's sweet. Mm -hmm. And I think to me, it feels like it's still in this kind of like double bind of like you're writing about women's topics in like Mm -hmm. heavy air quotes. Mm -hmm. And you're writing about something that at least kind of mainline second wave feminism has not figured out how to think about in an interesting Mm. or smart way or still has like complicated relationships to. And so it has felt at times like there's not a good home for that work in other spaces. Although again, that's changing. I don't know. I guess all that to say, like it's something that I, even as we were working on this anthology, Emily and I were both working on our own second books. And it took me such a long time to write that book, in part because, like, I had two babies in the middle of it. I started my job, like, all of that. But another part of it was really just the conceptual, like, getting my head around the fact that I was writing a book about, like, the early years of being a mother. And it was like I was Mm. fighting against that for so long. Mm. And I kept saying this. It's a book about having a baby, but it's also, you know, the other things. And it is. But once I got my head around the fact and like just accepted like this is a book that has a kind of narrative heart. It starts with an ultrasound and ends with a fifth birthday party. Like that's how you lay it out. And then I kind of layered in the other poems along that narrative skeleton. It came together in a really different way. So all that to say, mm-hmm. even as I was making this anthology that like really explicitly mm-hmm. valued work on writing and mothering, that stigma was still there somewhere in the back of my head with my own work so much that I didn't want to be writing a book that was about mothering. What do you think about that, Emily? I'm curious what you think about that, like this idea of where the home is or remains around mothering. Yeah, I wrote a roundup review of motherhood poetry books a few years ago for the Georgia Review. And I was really thinking about that question as kind of a frame for, and we were working on this anthology at that time. and, And I think one of the things is, In writing programs, there's a real stigma. There's a lot of snobbery around poetry, certain kinds of poetry. You can see this tension in the way people discuss Instapoets and sort of like, what is poetry and what's not poetry? And a real desire to claim certain boundaries on what is poetry, I think, as a way of justifying a certain kind of gatekeeping. Like, this is legitimate, this is not legitimate, and therefore what I, established poet, am doing is remains at the top, and these other things remain at the bottom. And one of the big things you learn implicitly and explicitly in poetry writing programs 
is that your poetry should not be sentimental. And in a way, it's almost like this is what separates a good poem from a Hallmark card. It's like, this is sentimental. A card is sentimental. Yes, it rhymes, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's not real poetry. And so as you said earlier, there's a lot of misogyny in it. A lot of the words that are used to criticize a poem are words that are associated with women, with femininity, with feminine traits. I also think there's an interesting thing of like poetry, you know, as much as like institutions are gendered, poetry is gendered female. And so for men to be poets, they've got to do certain things to really like Hmm. make it socially acceptable to be a man who's poet. I've heard this theory also about like the misogyny in certain online communities that like if you're a man who spends most of his time online, like you've got to do certain things to like demonstrate your masculinity. So in poetry, I think also there's a weird anxiety of masculinity. And so I just think there's a lot of misogyny in the world of poetry that like just historic. And so I think both Nancy and I grew up at a time where we we absorbed and trusted in that misogyny. And so we both have it, a lot of that internalized misogyny, and we have it about our own work. So Sasha West is one of my good friends, and I've had that conversation with her so many times where she's like, well, why is war universal? Why is, you know, and it's universal because it's male. It's gendered male as much as women can be a part of war and are a part of war, not just as fighters, but as communities that are devastated by war. Mm -hmm. But I think that even today, if someone asks me, what do you write about? And I say, oh, it's a lot about motherhood. There's just that expression on the person's face is like, for me or not for me? You know, Mm -hmm. you just see that. Whereas I feel like if I were saying like, well, I write about time, I write about death (laughs) or I write about, Mm -hmm. you know, it would be like, oh, that's so fascinating. So universal. But in the end, I think I'm learning more and more as a teacher that with my own students, what makes their writing powerful is its particularity. And then how we find the universal truths in the particulars. And as a reader, I don't want to just read about experiences like my own. I mean, I'm reading to learn about like the world and about humankind and the range of human emotions and human actions and things like that. So as much as I understand that we live in a world that has these biases, I also just have to say, like, this is what I'm doing It has particulars in it that are universal, and it will appeal to the people it's going to appeal to. But yes, I still feel it. I still feel it too, Nancy. I don't feel like I've come out the other side, the triumphant writer of motherhood poetry. As you were talking, I was saying also, I feel like a big thing, and I wonder again if this has changed. I did my MFA in like 2008 to 2010, I think. And that was still in a moment where like things that were experimental in a particular way were very cool. Like mm-hmm. writing about personal experience was not anything yeah. that was about your identity was not. True. And I think that has changed. Yes. And I would bet that there's a certain kind of different feeling in MFA programs now. Yes. But I do think like readers tend to assume that poems are personal and a lot of mine are, right? Like, and I wrote a thing for the LSU blog about my book where I was like, "Those, no, 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 I am the speaker in these poems. You know, there's this kind of like separation always of the speaker and the poet. And in my new book, like I am, it's not all of me, but it's one section of me in that moment. And it felt important to say that. 
but that doesn't mean that I like typed up my diary, you know, and I think that's the kind of I think that poems that are apparently or in fact personal some readers assume then that it's just a kind of like decanting of personal experience, you know, that you've just kind of dumped your feelings onto the page. And so they're not really art or whatever. I think Melissa Phoebos's book, Body Work, about personal narrative really helped me to think about that. Yeah, I guess what I was thinking as you, well, I had two thoughts as you were talking. One, that there's a poem, again, I am not as steeped, obviously, in poetry as you both are. It's a father writing to his daughter, and I forget. It's a really short poem. It's written by a man. But I was thinking as you were talking about when I read that, not for one moment did I even really think like, oh, this is about fatherhood. It's a fatherhood poem. Yeah. Right. So there's obviously that contradiction. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of great historic poems, the great writing to their daughters. But I remember as a young teenager being really influenced by I think it's Richard Wilbur is a poem called The Writer. And it's about the father writing to his daughter who is she's writing like she's typing and he can hear her struggle through the Mm. typewriter. And I loved that poem. And, you know, I was the girl in that poem. I wasn't Mm -hmm. thinking of it as a fatherhood poem. Right. In reading The Long Devotion, I was particularly struck by the way in which The poems, while often not incredibly long or incredibly pedantic, thankfully, but they really did an incredible job of bridging the work that we do as caregivers and also as artists and how that is a form of activism and how that also extends to more traditional activist roles such as, you know, the type of work that is going on in climate change and in gun control and in abortion and in women's rights. And so using motherhood and the poetry itself as a lens and as a tool to access those wider themes and also those wider, really important topics, it felt like the poems themselves just held that much more power because of their ability to straddle all of those pieces and connect the dots in a way that I really haven't seen done and certainly not in such an expansive collection of poetry. Well, in our, I mean, not that we weren't in our current political moment (laughs) in 2018, but in our current, current Mm -hmm. political moment, I think that including poetry about abortion and miscarriage and plan B and in an anthology of motherhood poetry and to say this is part of the motherhood experience. I think that feels political and it feels activist. I think having poets with different gender identities and poets with different family structures and just to say all of these ways of being a family, all of these ways of calling oneself a mother are ways of that this title mother exists in so many different forms. So I think anytime you open a definition rather than narrowing it, that's political. And so that's an activist move in this book. In terms of activism, sort of outside of politics, but just like thinking of activism as like the word active, Having writing prompts in the book and saying kind of to the reader, you too are a writer and you too can record whatever it is you need to be saying right now. 
And if you need a starting point, here are some starting points. I think that inviting more people into work and into creativity is also an activist stance. Hmm. I would just add to that. I think there's so many messages to women or really to not anyone who's not a cisgender dude that your voice doesn't matter, that your experience doesn't matter, that your experience mm, is particular and maybe not interesting to other people. There are so many messages around that. And then I think there also are so many messages for mothers or people who are involved in caregiving that that work should like always take priority, right? Like you couldn't possibly do your writing when you have a baby because of course the baby comes first, always, always, always. And I think that, yeah, as Emily is saying, this work and then maybe the prompts especially are meant to be a counter to that in some ways as a way of saying like, you could put the baby down for a minute and record this thing that matters to you. You could like let your kid watch another episode of a terrible television show because it's going to allow you to get some writing done or something else done that matters to you. Like you could do the thing that matters to you and not always, always put the caregiving first. It's hard to talk about those things in a way that doesn't make them seem like they're at odds. Right. But that's Mm -hmm. an important part of the message as well is like that your voice, your story is valuable. That creative impulse that I think all of us feel is important. That doesn't diminish just because there are kids in your life that you're caring for now. Right. I found that to be the case for sure in this book. And I also, I mean, obviously this podcast started, I mean, it's called the postpartum production podcast. So there was a lot that I was grappling with there. And throughout the course of this season, I'm actually, you guys are towards the end of the season. I'm finding it really interesting that, as you said, to kind of even just crack open the definition of postpartum. Mm -hmm. As you were talking, I was thinking that, and this is something I haven't shared a lot about in my work or even on this podcast, I don't think, but my husband and I, prior to becoming parents to the children that we have now, had a failed adoption and we had gone through a whole adoption. We had a lot of infertility challenges that I have shared about, but the adoption I've shared probably a little bit less about. And I was thinking about postpartum, right? And I was thinking like what that postpartum period looked like. And it really like there was a postpartum period Mm -hmm. through that process. And obviously we see postpartum in a very specific clinical way often that's been defined for us. We could analyze who's defined that and why. But this particular podcast came about because I was basically in bed with my third child and thinking about work and about productivity in the creative space, but also just in the world and capitalist world in general and thinking about, wait a minute, like the caregiving is work. Obviously, there's a lot that's been thankfully being done in American society right now around that, like Angela Garb's new book. I mean, there's so many new books that have come out or you could go back even to Sylvia Federici and all of that important activism. And at the same time, I thought though, like in terms of the creative process, like maybe Nancy, to your point, It isn't even the separation from that caregiving, but that caregiving itself could be part of the creative, that there are creative work that's generated from that itself. And I think that's where this work that you've put together, I can like feel that. I can like, Mm -hmm. it feels really visceral to me that there are lived experiences that then are mined for art and that they're like, it isn't the separation and that's okay too. Like how to like both and like how to hold those. Yeah, I really appreciated that. And it really, obviously, personally, (laughs) it's given me a lot of empowerment, I think, you know, in terms of just all of these subject matters. But to that end, I'm curious. Well, first, I want to say, is there anything that I haven't covered that you want to cover? Because I have sort of some closing questions. But before we close, is there anything? 
No, I just wanted to add, I think we've gone in so many directions. And I think earlier you had asked each of us, like kind of what does our caregiving look like along Mm. with our writing life? And what you've just said now, I think has been really important to me that, I mean, there's plenty of time that I'm like ignoring my kids or just they're doing what they're doing. And I'm writing and my husband is playing an instrument and we're kind of following our own paths and our own passions. But also when my kids were younger, there was a lot of time that I was writing while caregiving. Although it was very hard for me to kind of do that with my brain, like to do both of those things. So maybe I wasn't like honing or really making the poem, but a lot of times just like writing down what they said or Mm. things like that. And then those things would become part of a poem later. And so for me, and I don't think this is necessary for every caregiver's process, but for me, caregiving has really been like fuel to my process. Like I write a lot about what I'm living right now. And what I'm living right now is really steeped in being a mother and seeing the world through that lens. Nancy, did you want to add on your... Sure. I'll just add one specific example to that in terms of process. One of the things that I've thought a lot about is like, as Emily was saying, like doing this writing in the midst of everything else and trying to think about ways to write when you can't write or ways to write when you don't have like an hour or even 20 minutes where you can sit down and no one's going to bother you. There are ways to keep your creative brain going when you can't write. And that might look like, as you were saying in Emery's example, like recording a voice memo real quick. It might look like scribbling a note down. It might even just look like taking a picture Mm -hmm. or writing down something your kids said and trusting that that will like keep Mm -hmm. your creative brain going in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really ultimately, right, as creative people, we are always examining the world and trying to reflect both our personal experience and the wider experience. And to that end, you were both reminding me that a couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation on this podcast with an artist named Erica Lee Sears. And I was kind of feeling, it was in one of those moments of like start of summer vacation. We had just had COVID. Like I'm like three young kids, like this is so irrelevant. Plus all of the political, I mean, I don't even know where to start. There's so much obviously drawing us away from our daily work, both as caregivers and as creatives. And I was like, why am I writing this novel? Like, who's going to read this? And she said, which I thought was so important that like as creatives, whether it's visual arts, poetry, writing, in any form and writing, et cetera, songwriters, we are always recording this lived experience. She's like, even if that's 500 years, someone discovers this and see and is able to understand what human experience was at that moment. I was like, oh, right. Thank you for that reminder. This is important work. Like we are recording history, right? We are recording political moments. Like I think again to that, drawing us all back again to Sasha West's work and her note about war as a lens, right? If this is the lens, then that's the lens. And this is, it's all relevant and it's all meaningful and important. And so that was helpful. I mean, I think obviously there are the capitalist constraints of saying, oh, this isn't paying me anything. Why am I doing Mm -hmm. this? And caregiving Mm -hmm. is in that same bucket. So, you know, Nancy, like you said, the double bind gets that much trickier and slipperier. But yeah, thank you. Because this conversation is really, again, selfishly, this is giving me motivation. So I hope that also for listeners, it makes you feel the work is really relevant and valid and important. So my last two questions to every guest this season have been, what is postpartum and what is production? Who wants to go first? 
I'll start with one half of it and then Nancy's going to have to take something and then maybe I can do the other (laughs) half of my part. I want to start with what is production because this is something I think I really struggle with as an achiever, as someone who's raised to be an achiever, is that I am really trying to move away from the idea that production is a product that can be consumed or recognized by an external audience. I mean, and maybe that's what production is, but I'm trying to move away from the idea that that is what is good and holy and what I should always be doing at all times. And if I am resting, it's only in service of being able to produce more and better (laughs) at a slightly later time. And so I think, yeah, I'm trying to let go of the idea of constant production being the end goal and more towards like observation or harmony or as being the end goal. Mm -hmm. So that's my beginning. And I'll have to think about the other part while Nancy says something brilliant. I mean, I would just add to that. It's one of the things that I really loved about the concept of this podcast, because like Emily, I'm really trying to think and rethink what it means to be productive. I taught a class this past spring based on Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, which is a lot about questioning productivity culture. And this question that she asked kind of early in the book is like, when we talk about productivity, like producing what and for whom? And I think that's a really good question. Like maybe we should all actually be producing less like in terms of less stuff, right? I also think a lot about, because I am, as Emily said, also like really an achiever and I want to be able to like get credit for my work and get an A and all that. Like I haven't shaken that as much as I would like Mm -hmm. to. So one of the things that I'm really working on is trying to expand like what I will count for myself as productivity or as Mm. writing and reminding myself that like, oh, thinking, like honestly, just sitting at my desk and thinking is a thing that is important or walking around and thinking, I'm revising this book proposal right now. And a lot of that process has been like trying to lay it out visually so that I can see it. So like last week, I only produced like seven index cards of sections and then like a note under each one. But that was really important, hard work to like think about how those pieces came together. And I think so much of, I don't know, I'm right now, I want to blame the internet for everything. But like the idea that it's really hard to just sit and like have an unmediated thought without thinking like, maybe I'll open up my phone and see if someone sent me an email or maybe I'll just check Twitter real quick. Like it's so easy to feel like you should always be doing something Mm -hmm. when maybe like sitting and not doing something is actually what you need to move forward with your work or just to be a happy person. But your other question, what's postpartum? Was Mm -hmm. that your question? Mm -hmm. Oh, God. Right? I don't know. I mean, I love what you said earlier about a postpartum period adoption and even cisgendered men bodies change and their hormones change and everything changes when a child comes into their lives. So I don't think that postpartum has to be tied to the physical act of carrying a child and giving birth to that child. 
I'm beginning to understand, and I guess I understood a while back, but I'm beginning to understand that it's like forever, like no matter, you know, <laughs> That's what I, was I mean, say. It, yeah, that like I'm 46 years old and my parents are still in their postpartum period <laughs> like with me and my older siblings, like they're still dealing with us and we're dealing with them too. I think it's what it is, is always evolving as as you go through different life stages. But I just think there are both physical and biological changes and then just like structural changes to how your life moves once you have accepted or once you've taken on the role of caring for a young person, then you're in it. And I think there's, I mean, to your point about it being forever, I think there's this kind of mythology, which maybe is changing, but certainly before I had my kids, I had the idea that like, I don't know, that I would have a baby and I did like, you know, I was pregnant and I delivered them like, that I would like have a baby and then I would like go back in some way. The idea that I would like get Mm. my body back and the idea that like the perfect like postpartum body is one that looks like it never had a baby. And it turns out like you never really go back. I think I thought not even just like physically in terms of weight or whatever, but like I think I thought I would just like, I don't know, I would have a baby, but I would like go back to being myself, my pre-baby self. Just so dumb now that I say it. But as Emily says, like it really is forever. There is no kind of like end to the postpartum period, right? Like now I have this life where I have two kids in it and that has changed like everything about the structure of my life and my brain and my creativity and my time. I think there's a time when I would have found that kind of like a bummer, but I don't now. Thank you both so much. I am so excited to gift this to so many people in my life. So I hope that this can continue to be seen. I mean, I really felt like it feels like a gift to me. So I'm excited to pass it on in that way to others. This conversation flowed in many directions, following a similar trajectory as new motherhood. There are so many insights I took from this conversation, but what comes up for me now is really just how poetry can capture the gray area where motherhood and artistry intersect. Even the very definition of motherhood poetry and what that means can shift and morph as we've heard in today's conversation. What is motherhood poetry to you? Does poetry speak to you in ways other art forms can't during early motherhood? And if so, how? I'd love to know. Please reach out to me at hello at postpartumproduction.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. This will help us reach more listeners like you who are navigating the joys and pitfalls of artistic and parenting identities. For regular updates, visit our website, postpartumproduction.com, follow us on Instagram at postpartumproductionpodcast, and subscribe to our podcast newsletter on Substack. Thank you for listening, and we are so grateful to have you with us on this journey. Postpartum may feel like forever, and sometimes it may feel very lonely, but you're not alone here. <laughs>